you said was the most complex passage in the Bible, and he didn't really have an answer for what exactly some of these verses meant. Um, I've struggled with it, labored in it uh, here, and uh, with with the great short week of Christmas, and uh, not feeling so great. Here, I'll put out those uh, those disclaimers here this morning. Here, let's see what God has for us in this word. Um, it does not. Uh, um, you know, all the scripture doesn't fit into a nice three-point outline uh, here, and that's good. That's a good thing. Um, it's to shake us out of our out of our grips and um, put it in the grip of the Lord. And we don't. Um, uh, we 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 need to wrestle with the difficult passages as well. Um, there's things in this passage that are abundantly clear, and then there's things that some people have wondered about and had, have had a variety of different interpretations over the years. Um, I'll give you the one that I've uh, landed on at this point in my life uh, here, um, but I hope you'll, you'll see the, the main thing being the main thing here this morning, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the victory of Christ in this passage. I share with you this morning from Genesis to Revelation how Jesus is repeatedly and consistently identified as the one who is coming to crush his enemies and make things right and make things new. But the fact that there are enemies means that everything isn't right with this world and that it impacts us in some way because it impacts God and Jesus, his son, and we're united to Jesus, his son. But there's a built-in way of thinking in us that causes us to think that nothing bad should happen to us. Maybe other people, but not me. And this is especially amplified when we do good and still have bad things happen to us. There's a way of thinking that has really deep roots that says, when I do good, good things should happen to me. Like Santa Claus, right? Be good for goodness sake, right? So the presents come. And many times and sometimes that does happen. But it is not a guarantee. When you suffer, and especially at the hands of others, as this audience that Peter is writing to in Asia Minor here, scattered abroad exiles, living in Babylon, and have seen uh, the, the pressure begin to build and things tighten on them from outsiders, when you suffer, especially at the hands of others, and especially for doing good, strains of that kind of thinking that I mentioned can leave you in a state of bewilderment. But our thinking needs to change to make sense of it and turn our eyes to God. Because when we suffer, God always intends it to turn our focus, our heart, our affections to God. And when you suffer, for no apparent reason, especially at the hands of others, it is not revenge that the Bible commands, as the world does. It's not thinking positive thoughts about the situation. It's not building up self-confidence that is the answer. The answer is very simple. And Peter gives the answer here. It is simply to return to and believe the gospel of the Son of God, slain, buried, resurrected, ascended, victorious over sin and darkness. And so when you came to Christ, you believed the gospel and God made you a new creation. When you grow in Christ... You're seeing that gospel, those gospel roots of Jesus, victory over sin and death, read Romans 6 through 8, right? Grow deeper and deeper. And so we don't move out of the gospel onto bigger and better things. We grow deeper into our understanding of the gospel, and that's what grows us and makes us more and more holy. I'd like you to notice the context here, and it's been a couple of weeks, 
For some reason, the Lord has us on this theme of suffering, as we saw in Matthew chapter 2 and 18, verse 18, with Rachel weeping for her children, and what God has done in Christmas in Christ. Birch preached a couple weeks ago here on chapter 3 and verses 8 through 17, which was the context here of not returning evil for evil, of not returning uh, what has happened to you and, uh, 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 to, to be hurt, to hurt other people, but instead replacing that with good and replacing that with a right, um, uh, uh, a right perspective, a right attitude, a, a, a correct and a um, proper heart that is aligned with the Lord so that God can pour His, His, His blessing out, you, out on you in, in, in many ways. And so when you are experiencing suffering, you have an opportunity to communicate and display to the world that you have an eternal hope that cannot be ripped away from you because it is inseparably joined to Jesus Christ eternally. And so, so, so the way you respond displays to the world that Jesus is Lord, Master. He says in chapter 3, verse 15, Sanctify or set apart the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers. So the pressures will still come. You'll still be persecuted as a believer of Jesus Christ. But they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conduct in Christ. And he says, for it is better, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. And then I want you to notice the very first word of verse 18. For, on the basis of this, so it's the context here of suffering, of thriving in Babylon, when Babylon is pressing in on you with its barbs. He says this, look at Christ. For Christ, also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened or made alive by the Spirit. The first thing you need to remember, when you are, uh, when Babylon is pressing in on you with its barbs, and is to be reminded of the victory in Jesus Christ here by standing on the sacrifice. Stand on the sacrifice. Because of what Jesus has given to you. Notice the language of these verses. Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. That we looked at from Genesis to Revelation. The promised one. Has once, and the idea of that word once is the idea of once and for all. Has once and for all, with one sacrifice. His suffering isn't repeated in the Mass. This is a one-time suffering of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Has, has once suffered for sins. Wait a minute. Jesus was righteous. Jesus was perfect. Jesus never sinned. But Jesus suffered for sins. At the hands of sinners and for sin. The just, the righteous one for the unrighteous, for the unjust. Why? What's the end goal of our salvation? One of the things is to go to heaven. But why do we go to heaven? One of the things is to not go to hell. But why do we not go to hell? The reason God has given us Christ in the Gospel is laid out very clearly here. To bring us to God. This has been a theme all through the Scriptures. God told Israel, I will be your God. 
and you shall be my people. John 1.14 says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Matthew tells us that Joseph was told by the angel, he'll call his name Jesus. He will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. The end of the book, Revelation chapter 20, says that uh, when, 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 the, when, the, when the city ascended out of heaven to rest on the new creation and new heavens and the new earth, that God says, I will be their God and they shall be my, my children. Friends, when you understand the Gospel, understand this is what it delivers to us and this is what it delivers you to. So if you're going to suffer, if you're going to be poked with the barbs of Babylon, you need to remember that there is victory in Jesus, there is a power, there is a courage that comes as you stand on the sacrifice. Christ also suffered once for sins. There is nothing you can do to earn that. He paid the penalty for your sin. He was the just, the righteous. He lived the life you couldn't live. He gives you His full credit here of righteousness. We call that imputation. Why? That He might bring us to God. And how was that possible? Because He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. His death and His resurrection. So as you are, 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 are facing persecution and suffering in general, stand on the sacrifice. This is the permanent reality in which you stand that cannot be taken away, snatched out of you. But secondly, I'd like you to notice the little more difficult part here. In verse 19, by which also He went. So, made alive by the Spirit. By which also He went and preached to the spirits in prison which sometimes or at one time were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing were in few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. What I want you to understand is, is a little bit of background that goes all the way to the foundation of our Bible, the foundation of truth, the foundation of the world in Genesis, the beginnings. Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth and He populates it. And on that last day of creation, He makes man. And He makes woman, we're told in Genesis chapter 2, on that last day, He brings them together. And the Bible says He makes them in His image. And He tells them to bear His image. He tells them to go forth and multiply. To go forth and multiply other image bearers. To display to the world, to reflect to the world who God is. To be His representatives on this earth. And have dominion over the earth. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we read that things didn't go as God had intended. Not because God was surprised, but because man chose by an act of his will to rebel against God and listen to the evil one, the serpent, there in the garden. And as they both took the fruit, and Eve took the fruit, and Adam stands right by her, not doing anything about it, but participating in there, God comes and searches for them. They're ashamed. And they go and they run and they hide. And God calls them to account. And He asks them questions. Where are you? Why are you hiding? And they begin blaming other parties instead of taking responsibility for themselves. And God begins by telling them, this this is what's going to happen. You were told that you would surely die if you ate of that fruit. And this is what that death's going to look like. It's not going to be instant as far as a physical death, but the effects of death are going to seep in and there is a separation now between you and God. 
And one of the things he tells Satan is that, of course, Satan will be crushed. That serpent will be crushed. Well, you read Genesis chapter 4, and what you have is Adam and Eve obeying God and being fruitful and multiplying, and they have a son. They have a son that they named Cain. And the story tells us in Genesis chapter 4, they have another son named Abel. And Cain and Abel are in the fields and, um, they, are, and, and, and they are, are going to offer a sacrifice to God. And Cain chooses one way to offer that and Abel chooses a lamb. And God accepts Abel's sacrifice, but Cain's is presented with the wrong spirit and perhaps the wrong manner as well. And God doesn't accept Cain's sacrifice. And Cain rises up in jealousy against Abel and he kills his own brother. Image bearer of God. Murder. First death. I'm assuming here in Scripture. Abel becomes the first man to see God. The first populant in heaven. Cain, cursed by God. In Genesis 5, you start to see a genealogy and you see this pattern and they lived so many years and then they died. They had sons and daughters and they died. They died and they died. At the end of Genesis chapter 5, you read about this man named Lamech. who was a son named Noah. Perhaps he'll bring comfort in our days and he'll provide relief from the curse of the ground. Maybe thinking Noah was going to be the Messiah. But you read the next chapter in Genesis chapter 6. And here's something horrible that happens. And the scriptures say in Genesis 6 and verse 1 And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God, a term used in the Old Testament for the angelic realm, saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And God responds to that. Not positively. God sees the angelic realm taking these daughters of men, and God says, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, that his day shall be honored and 20 years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth both man and beast and creeping things and the fowls of the air, for repent or grieves me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You know the story, God sends a flood. There's an angelic realm that took upon, that, I don't know how this happened, whether they possessed bodies of men and, and uh, copulated with these women, I'm not sure, but the idea here is that it was a wicked thing in God's eyes. And Peter, who's very familiar, obviously, as a Jew with Jewish history and the story, will write this in his next letter, being very familiar with this. He'll write this in Second Peter chapter 2. And he'll say this. 
For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to reserve to judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And Jude repeats the same thing. And Jude says this, In Jude 1 and verse 6. And the angels which kept not their first estate, their first position, but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness to the judgment of the great day. So there's an idea, concept here, of those who did this act in Genesis chapter 6. God has fast-forwarded. He has given them a fast-pass, a go-to-jail card, very quickly here, and they are reserved until the Day of Judgment when they are finally cast into the lake of fire. And in our Scripture in 1 Peter 3, and verse 18, Christ died, was resurrected, in verse 19, by which also He went and preached to the spirits in prison, which sometime or one time were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, all the ark was preparing, were in a few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. He's telling us here that Jesus Christ, after His resurrection, went to those spirits in prison, and Jesus Christ proclaimed His victory over them. I don't know if it was a message. I don't know if He just looked at them, or pointed at them, pointed to His resurrected body. And however you understand this, I want you to understand the second truth. If there is victory in Jesus, so we stand on the sacrifice, there is victory in Jesus because we can stand on the superiority of Jesus. You see, sometimes we think that there's, a, there's this cosmic warfare and it's a kind of dualism. There's, there's the bad guys and the good guys and this God and Satan and they're at war with one another and sometimes God has the upper hand and sometimes Satan has the upper hand when things are going poorly. Um, uh, and we know in the end God's going to work it out. But I want you to understand this. God has always had Satan on a leash. When Job had to, when 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 Satan came to Job, to God and said, "I'd like to tempt, to test that man Job," he had to ask God's permission. Satan is not just running free here. God has allowed him a certain domain, but there is no comparison with the power with these dark forces of evil with God. Remember Jesus' miracles, right? Jesus did many good things, many good miracles, and of course, those miracles benefited many people. But I want you to understand, they weren't just so that Jesus looks like a nice guy, helping people. He was rich in righteousness. He, 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 Peter says in Acts chapter 10, he went about doing good, but those miracles were to display his authority. And do you remember what happens when he encounters people possessed by the devil, by demons? Those demons aren't very brash, are they? They cower, don't they? They shrink back. 
They are very insecure when they come into the presence of Jesus. And Jesus many times says to them to go out. And remember the, remember the, the demoniac. The guy who no one knew what to do with. And so they put him on the outskirts of the city. He was naked. They chained him. He broke the chains. They didn't know what to do with him. Remember the maniac of Gadara. And Jesus confronts the demons who are possessing that man. And they know who Jesus is, don't they? They know who stands behind. They know the authority in Jesus. And they're really insecure. They say, what are you going to do with us? Jesus. And Jesus casts them into the pigs, right? However you understand this passage, some people understand it as Noah when he was preaching with spirit, preaching in the spirit of Christ. A lot of the reformers and the Protestant Reformation took that. I don't take that view. I take it quite literally here. That Jesus spoke to the spirits in prison, those ones in Genesis 6 who had, had received a special punishment here and were, were not allowed to roam free, free through the earth like the others. They're awaiting that day of judgment here in verse 20. That Jesus is superior. Now you're saying, what does that mean for me in this context of suffering? Because that's what this is all about, isn't it? This is suffering. Why do I need to know that Jesus went down and He preached to the spirits of disobedience and He declared His victory over them? Because friends, in persecution, and it's hard talking to our audience, isn't it, about persecution, would be easier in other places, wouldn't it? But behind that persecution, whether we've experienced that or whether we hear about it in other places, there is a spiritual realm behind the one who is beating that believer. There is a dark force behind the one who is cutting off economic support for that poor family in North Korea. There is a dark, hideous face behind that camp guard in North Korea who is going to send those that, that, that family member in North Korea to medical exper- experiments. That there has always been an evil agenda, as we saw last week, and is satanically fueled. And there is a dark realm here. But friends, can I remind you what Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection did by having you turn with me to Colossians chapter 2? Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12 says, We're buried with him in baptism. Wherein also you are risen with Him through the faith and the operation of God who has raised Him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh has He quickened together with Him. Having forgiven you all trespasses. This is just like we read in chapter 3.18, isn't it? Blotting out the handwriting, the, the condemnation of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, and He took it, and He nailed it to the cross. But look at what the rest of the verse says. And having spoiled principalities and powers, this is a dark, unseen realm, He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Stand on the superiority. And you're suffering. Stand on the superiority of Jesus, who has conquered all, who has suffered all things, 
Stand on His sacrifice, but stand on Jesus as the victor. Don't forget that when He was risen, He ascended on high. There's power. He tells His disciples before He ascends that all authority is given unto Me both in heaven and in earth. The realm of satanic force has always been the prince of the power of this air, right? Jesus says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. And then, He says this, picturing here and building on this picture of Noah and these eight souls that were saved by water, Noah and his wife and and his sons and their wives. Saved on the ark, right? Flood came upon the earth, right? To purge the earth. Wrath of God, judgment of God. They were sheltered in in the ark here. Such a picture of Christ, right? Sheltered uh, in the ark. Then he's going to build on that Peter will build on that and say this, verse 21, the like figure or the corresponding truth here of that ark in the water, baptism, does also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We hear that and we say, okay, what is Peter saying here? We say by faith alone, right? By grace alone, Christ alone. And what Peter is saying here is your baptism, your immersion here, really did mean something. It really did mean something. It wasn't just everybody having a good time there and you checking off a box of religious significance, was it? <coughs> Believer's baptism, where a believer, not an infant, but someone who has called upon Christ to save them from their sins, a believer has profess their identity with Christ, and in this act, it does not save them, but it is professing what has taken place in their hearts to the rest of the world. rest of the world know that this is my pledge to you, God. This is my public profession. That as I go under the water, I died with you, Christ. I went with you into the water. My old self is dead. And I came out of the water. It's a picture of what's gone into my heart. That I am a resurrected, alive in Christ being. I've been made alive. I have a new life. I'm a new creation. The old ways are gone. The new has come. That water in the flood was God's judgment, right? When you go under the water, you are identifying with Jesus. Jesus took your old self, nailed him to the tree with him, the Bible says in Galatians. You're crucified with Christ, the old self. You're raised again to new life. You know, when you have baptism and you put the person under the water, you don't hold them down there, do you? Let me ask you a really simple question. Why not? That's not where you stay, right? That's not where you stay. That's where you were. That's what happened to it. When you come out of the water, you're alive. And notice the rest of verse of the verse here. Verse 21. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
I hope you're glad that Pastor brought you out of that water, right? You're a new creation. You're joined to the new creation, Jesus. You are a new creature. And what Peter is saying here is your baptism means something. And you may have never thought about this, but as you go through suffering, you need to think about your baptism. Because it's the visible picture of everything that God has done in the victory of Christ, isn't it? It doesn't add a little, it doesn't add one, one drop of grace to you, right? God's given you that in Jesus Christ. It is your first step of obedience, though, isn't it? In new life. And just a side note here, if you haven't been baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ, um, you're in disobedience if you're able to do that and you, you have postponed that. Um, you're not in fellowship with the Lord and you need to be baptized. Not because it's going to add anything to your salvation, but it's because you love Jesus. If, you, if Jesus saved you, this is, this is, we obey, right? We obey because we love Him. So you stand on the sign. You stand on the sign. And what I mean by that is everything that your baptism uh, represents here, uh, uh, Peter says that the, God, the God, God of this world has directed the wrath of God on sin away from you and onto Christ at the cross. And He has poured out His love and shed that abroad, Romans 5 says, in your heart through the Holy Spirit. Now, what do these three truths have anything to do with suffering? Stand on the sacrifice, stand on the superiority, stand on the sign. There's a couple things they do. The first is this. When you are persecuted, or if we want to extend this, when you're suffering, there is tremendous comfort that knows that God has conquered the greatest enemy. Right? That there is nothing that is going to be outside of His hands. And that He has poured His love on His child. And this suffering here is training for His Son to be more and more visible in your life. Remember what we said? That suffering is always to turn us to God. Stand on the sacrifice for sins. This is what it took for Him to buy you and bring you to God. But stand in the superiority knowing that the enemies of God will be defeated. There is, there, there, is, there, is, there is not a, oh, I forgot about that part in the Gospel, right? Oh, we should have taken care of that. No, this is taken care of here. There is a short leash here. There will be one day when, these, uh, when, when Satan and, and, and those who rebel against Christ are taken care of fully and finally, right? And we don't say that lightly and glibly, do we? But also I want you to understand, stand on the sign that God has taken the waters of baptism here. You have averted the wrath of God in Christ. And in your suffering, God is not pouring out His wrath on you. You are not condemned in Christ. But He is molding and fashioning you into the person of the one who is bringing you to God. 
So what Peter here is saying is that the victory over these dark forces of evil has in fact been won through the Messiah and that after His resurrection, after He's been made alive by the Spirit, He, the Messiah, has made this definitive announcement to the spirits that they have indeed been judged. Their power has been broken. And that ought to function as enough encouragement to these little groups of Christians scattered abroad in Asia Minor, hiding in caves, who face persecution from their own local authorities and from the shadowy spiritual forces that seem to give their their enemies their power. Because ever since their original rebellion, these forces have been stealing usurped power. But the Messiah has triumphed over them and the enemy knows it. And so these, this strange passage here really does fit together. These pieces tell us that what we need to know, whether we are facing trouble or persecution, is this. That Jesus the Messiah, the one who is the hope of Israel, has defeated all the spiritual powers in the world, the ones responsible for wickedness and corruption from ancient times. And it may not look as though that is true. And these little Christian communities facing suffering needed reminded of this literal, tangible act of going under the water and coming out. And what that represented was Messiah in His victory. And they could hold their heads up in confidence and courage in suffering. They could keep their consciences clear and pursue Christ-likeness and holiness. And they could believe and trust that the victory of Christ will be played out to the world that they are bearing witness to. There's probably many Christians today who need this message. And those of us who don't think we knew need to learn it. To be prepared. And also, to better pray for and encourage our brothers and sisters who are facing suffering and being persecuted. And against the day, we know we will suddenly need it ourselves. And I want to close with what the writer of Hebrews says about this in Hebrews chapter 2. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became Him, or was proper for Him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect, mature, through sufferings. For both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God has given me. For as much then as the children, that's you and me, are partakers of flesh and blood. He also, himself, likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved or was best for him to be made like to his brother, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest 
and things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people for that and he himself has suffered being tempted or tested. He is able to deliver and help them that are tested. And it's what Peter brings us to at the end, right? These great words here. Let's say it together. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Why can Peter say that? Because of what he said in 1 Peter 3, 18-22. There is Christ who is the victor for us. Let's pray. Lord, as we close, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. You could have directed these little churches, these little groups of people to a variety of different things they could think about, they could be reminded of. But you went right to the heart of it. You went right to the gospel. And the security that comes in the gospel. And the reminder of your great love. That's all apparent through this. You did this to bring us to God. And there is no force, as Romans 8 says, principalities or powers or anything that will be able to separate us from the love of God. And may we, in our suffering, when it comes, in the middle of it, know beyond the shadow of a doubt your deep love behind it. It's hard to persevere in difficult things unless we know that your love's behind it, and it is. Give us the strength to believe that. And we do pray for our brothers and sisters who are facing a variety of things. We didn't choose to grow up in this nation, to be born in the families that we're in. And they didn't in their particular circumstances either. And you're sovereign all behind that. And I pray that you would give them the strength, power that comes through knowing that you're their help, you're their high priest who has faced affliction and has gone through the fire. Help us to stand on the sacrifice of Christ. Help us to stand in the victory of Christ. The death blow has been dealt now and we'll see it come to fruition at your return. And help us to stand in the sign. Our pledge Our pledge of loyalty to you. You will never leave us and forsake us. And by your grace, help us to say the same. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.